0: Last Sunday afternoon, I had a stranger ask me for some guidance, some advice. And as he was asking for some advice, he asked me a question. He paused and he said, what motivates you to keep getting out of bed every morning? How would you have answered that question? The guy who asked me this question told me about his experience of depression. He described his experience like emotional quicksand, being trapped, hedged in on every side, felt like he was drowning in grief and sorrow. He'd been looking for answers, but he wasn't getting anywhere. So what would you have told this young man? What keeps you going? when it feels like you're sinking down? Well, you have found yourself here at Henson in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Job. Uh, The text for this morning is Job chapter three through Job chapter 37. Trent Hughes encouraged me to read all 35 chapters. (laughs) But I don't think we'll be doing that today. Uh, in fact, I'm going to be reading very little of the text. You can open to the book of Job. Even now, uh, we've provided pew Bibles and the chairs and the pews in front of you. And uh, Job is just to the left of the Psalms. so you can kind of go to the middle of the Bible and go left. It's uh, on page 440 of the Black Pew Bibles. Uh, but like I said, we're not going to have time to read uh, much of the text today. Instead, we're going to be looking through the major themes of these 35 chapters. And we're going to do things a little differently today. And so you're not furiously turning and also trying to take notes. Uh, Thanks to Kelly Sauter, we've put a lot of the text that I'll be quoting up on the slide. So hopefully that'll work and you'll just be able to read the text and listen. Let's think of our time in Job 3 through 37 today like a cave exploration. Our guides have names like dwarves out of the Lord of the Rings, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, The the trip through the cave is going to be dark, musty. It's going to smell like rotting flesh, thanks to our friend Job. Death is all around. You're going to feel gloom from Job's suffering. And it's quiet. But not for lack of noise. Job and his friends have a lot to say, 35 chapters worth of poetic dialogue, back and forth, and three cycles. But God never speaks in these 35 chapters, like as a, as a character in the, the drama, he doesn't speak. So we're going to need to feel our way in the gloom, in the dark, without God's voice, per se, as our guide. But let's not let God's silence and the darkness and the gloom cause us to get lost in these chapters. God still has something to say, as he always does in his word, And our question is this, what's he saying? What's he saying in these 35 chapters? Our main question as we walk through uh, just a few of the major themes in these chapters is this, what is God saying to you in your suffering? What is God saying to you in your suffering? In your suffering is God telling you you're guilty, or is he telling you I hate you? Or is he telling you, hope in me? What is God telling you in your suffering? Is he telling you, A, you're guilty? This is my longest point. Well, Job's life had been a series of mountaintop experiences previous to chapter 1, verse 6. We covered that last week. But now Job finds himself crushed under the weight of a mountain of grief and loss. Last Sunday, we left Job in ashes, scraping boils off his body with a piece of broken pottery. But now Job's friends are here to comfort him. So hope is on the way. And here in in this point, we're going to consider the main theme, just one main theme, of what they tell Job in his suffering. Eliphaz is the first to speak to Job in chapter four. He's probably the eldest and is the most respected, and let's hear what Eliphaz has to say to Job in his suffering. I'm gonna read from chapter four, verses six through eight. This is Eliphaz to Job. Consider, Job, who has perished when he was innocent? Where have the honest been destroyed? At least in my experience, those who plow injustice and those who sow trouble reap the same. You know, Eliphaz is, starts off a little gently, if you read the beginning of chapter 4. And he, he kind of, you know, couches this and saying, I know it's this is going to be difficult for you to hear right now, Job, but, dude, you reap what you sow. This kind of thing, the kind of thing that's happened to you, Doesn't happen to the innocent. God is disciplining you, Job. Eliphaz goes on to say in Job chapter four, verse 17, can a mortal be righteous before God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? Eliphaz's rhetorical answers to these questions is obviously not. No, you can't be righteous before God. You're guilty, son. That's why you found yourself in this situation. Is this what we like to hear when we're suffering? You deserve this. You had this coming to you. Job responds to Eliphaz's so-called words of comfort uh, with a complaint in chapters 6 and 7. Understandably, Job is feeling as if it's not only God who has rejected him now, but now his friends Let's see if Job's other friends will be a little more understanding. Let's listen to what Bildad has to say to Job in relation to losing all 10 of his kids. Remember, Job lost all 10 of his kids in one day. This is what Bildad says in chapter 8, verse 4. Since your children sinned against him, he gave them over to their rebellion. Whoa. Bildad basically is telling Job, sorry, Job, but your kids... Had it coming. Great friends you've got, Job. Uh, Let me tell you, Job 3 through 37, I don't know if you read it this last week, it's painful. (laughs) It's painful to see such a lack of empathy from Job's friends. It's painful to hear Job in such misery after all he's been through. And it's honestly a pretty painful long back and forth for 35 chapters of this. I think reading these chapters over and over again this last week put me in a bad mood, you could just ask my wife and kids. (laughs) We got 35 chapters of gloom and despair. But throughout these three cycles of poetic dialogue between Job and his friends, one thing becomes increasingly clear as you keep on reading. After a while, you know, you kind of get over the fact that Job's friends aren't very sympathetic. They don't have a real good bedside manner, if you will. But you look at what they say and you're like, especially if you know your Bibles, you're like, they're not completely crazy. Yes, they may be tone deaf. Yes, they're insensitive. But theologically, kind of makes, I mean, what they're saying isn't all wrong. Let me prove it to you. How many of these statements, I'm just going to give you a bullet points of statements and tell me how many of them you would agree with. You don't have to keep track, but just kind of think, yes, no, yes, no. Number one, you get what you deserve. What goes around comes around. Sow the wind, reap the whirlwind. There are moral causes and effects in our universe. Here's a fun one. America will fall as a superpower because of immorality. God helps those who help themselves. For every action in nature, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Pay it forward and you'll get, you will be rewarded. Train a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. If you could say yes to a number of those statements, you don't have all that different of a worldview than Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. You think a lot like Job's friends about how the world works if you were able to say yes to a number of those statements. And we shouldn't feel bad. I mean, one of those statements was like directly from the book of Proverbs. Another was Newton's third law of motion. Most of those statements are normally true. You know, consider the logical assumption that Job's friends are making about Job. It's not like Job is just going through a hard, time, a hard time, like we go through. I mean, it is very exaggerated suffering that Job is going through. It's as if Job was struck by lightning from heaven, like five times in one day. And by the fifth time, his friends are wondering, seriously, dude, what'd you do? What'd you do to make God so mad at you? You should just maybe repent. Repent. Job's friends conclude in these chapters that Job is guilty, guilty, guilty. That is what God is telling Job in his suffering. But Job strikes back. Listen to Job's comeback in Job 21, 7 through 13. Job asks, Why do the wicked continue to live, growing old and becoming powerful? Their children are established while they are still alive and their descendants before their eyes, their homes are secure and free of fear. No rod from God strikes them. Their bulls breed without fail. Their cows calve and do not miscarry. They let their little ones run around like lambs. Their children skip about, singing to the tambourine and lyre and rejoicing at the sound of the flute. They spend their days in prosperity and they go down to Sheol in peace. Job says, If it's true, that only the wicked, that the wicked are punished, how do we make sense of the prosperity of the wicked? Job's friends believe in a moral universe where everything happens for a reason. God punishes the wicked and he rewards the righteous. But Job's point in chapter 21 and throughout these chapters is, well, yeah, maybe sometimes, but not always. What about all the wicked people? who ignore God and live lives of prosperity and ease. If the wicked sometimes prosper, is it possible that the righteous could suffer? Drawing straight lines between our sin and our suffering puts us in the driver's seat and allows us to make judgments that should be reserved for God. We need a category for innocent suffering that one day will be answered. We need to have a category for the wicked prospering and being at peace, but not forever. Job's friends are actually right. Job is a sinner. When the Bible says he's blameless, it doesn't mean completely without sin. They are right that God is a God of justice and that God punishes sin. They're right that we live in a universe, and it's a moral universe, and he set up the universe with moral laws that appear at at times to have cause and effect relationships. But just because we can know some things and observe some things doesn't mean that we know all things. Just because we often suffer for doing bad doesn't mean we always suffer for doing bad in this life. Just because the wicked get what they deserve doesn't mean they always reap what they sow in this life. Fast forward to centuries later after the book of Job was written, some friends of a wise man named Jesus asked their teacher a question about a man born blind. The disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Think about that question. The disciples are not all that different from Job's friends. And if we're honest, I don't think we're all that different from Job's friends. We think that we ought to know the answer to the question of suffering. We need someone to blame. But listen to how Jesus answered his disciples in John chapter nine. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. God's punishment doesn't usually come the way that we think it will. It doesn't come with being born blind or with a disability. God's punishment doesn't come necessarily with our investments crashing, the loss of a loved one, a wayward child, or a natural disaster destroying our home or property. We should be very slow to claim that we can see behind heaven's curtain and understand why. God allows suffering to afflict us for one God's timetable is very different than ours today we don't live in a flat mechanical universe where we see cause and effect in real time God makes promises and he takes hundreds and even sometimes thousands of years to fulfill those promises And praise God that God is patient with the wicked and the guilty. You know, we have even taken the the Buddhist and the Hindu notion of karma and sped it up. So that, I mean, it has to do uh, in Buddhism and, and Hinduism with, you know, what you do in this life will affect when you're reincarnated the kind of life that you will have. But we've sped up karma today in our kind of fast food instantaneous culture that like if we cut someone off in traffic, uh, we think that maybe we deserve to be cut off in traffic later that day. Uh, But God is not a God of karma and God's timeline is so much longer than our memories. We need to establish that our world is broken and cursed and it is broken and cursed because of us in that humanity has rebelled against God. And it is true that God will one day punish the wicked with eternal suffering, but that doesn't mean that your suffering today or my trials today are because individual sins that we've committed. We should be humble enough not to conclude we know the reason for suffering, even when we so desperately want to know the reason for our suffering. That's a natural thing to want. Suffering is humbling enough. When we're struck down with an illness and we can't keep commitments, or maybe we can't even get out of bed, that humbles us. When we can't save a family member or a close friend from bad decisions, or abandoning the faith, that's humbling. But what is most humbling about our suffering is we don't even know why. That's what we thought about last week. Suffering is another opportunity to be reminded that God is God and we are not. So what we see here in the center of Job is God in his wisdom giving us a category of innocent suffering. I wonder why he would do that. I wonder why he would give us this category of innocent suffering. We'll think about that in a minute. But before we leave the so-called comfort uh, and wisdom of Job's friends, we need to consider how we can be better comforters uh, to people who are suffering than these three dwarves. Uh, Job's friends might have the best of intentions, they they understand themselves to be defending God's justice, but they're proud. We'll see that next week. They draw conclusions that only God should draw. Yeah, just for an example, I, I have a close friend who he and his wife have had multiple miscarriages, and some of the most unhelpful things that they were told in that time were from really godly theologically sound Christian friends. They were told things often like, well, you'll have more children. Th- that wasn't helpful, uh, because our, our friends found themselves asking, how do, you, how do you even know that? That's not, with the best of intentions, we can often make people suffering worse. So in our pain and loss, let's comfort one another, with reminders about who God is as a God of compassion, a God who is patient, a God who is good. Uh, Let's remind one another of the hope of the gospel. Uh, Let's not say more than we know. Let's be slow to, to draw lines and connections, but instead to draw near to one another and pray. I think speaking of prayer, I think it's interesting that in Job's, at least what we have recorded in this poetry, Job's friends never pray with him. They never go, they never go to God with Job. Um, maybe it's because I'm a pastor, so I feel like I should do this, but I think this is what Christians do. When I talk to some of you on the phone or when I meet with you and you're going through a hard time, you're going through a trial. There's no better thing to do than pray than to go in the presence of God and ask him to help, to ask him to draw near, to to be humble enough to say we are dependent on him instead of giving a theology lecture to say, we we are empty, we've got nothing other than Christ. We've got nothing other than we know God to be who he is promised to be. So we should pray with one another. Uh, Sometimes it feels like, especially for those of us who who like to, all of us like to be in control, that, that doesn't feel sufficient. We want to be busy. We want to do something. That's certainly been my reaction during times of trial. It's like, hey, give me something to do with my hands. But the best thing that we can do with one another is go to the God who is, is yes, sovereign over suffering, but also draws near. And I, I will say I've been so encouraged by how I've seen the church grow in this, just in my time here. Uh, even often after the services here, I'll see you praying with one another. That is the best thing that we can do. You know, I will say a word to, to you if you if you find yourself here and you're not someone who is following Jesus today, um, we're so glad that you're here today. You are always welcome here to our services. Uh, perhaps you find yourself even today looking for answers like that young man that I talked to last Sunday. And I have some bad news and I have some good news for you. The bad news is we don't have all the answers, I don't even know how much I was able to satisfy that young man with the with the gospel that I presented to him. I wasn't able to give him an answer for the suffering and the depression that he was experiencing. We don't have, as Christians, we don't have the silver bullet for pain and suffering. We can't make it go away. So if you think that to be a Christian means that we just are happy all the time, you know, we put Bible verses on our coffee mugs and we have perfect families and everything's perfect, Uh, That's, you don't really know a a real Christian, if that's what you think of means to follow Jesus. And I will say for us at Hinson, let's not fake it. You know, we come here on Sundays as sufferers, as those who are in pain, who those who have, so often we have been beaten down over the week. So let's be honest with how we're doing and not think that to be a Christian means just saying that everything's good. But here is the good thing. Here is the good news. God gets it. God gets us. He knows innocent suffering. He sent his son, who was perfectly without guilt, to suffer for the guilty. So if you are here, someone, if you're someone here today who doesn't know Jesus, we would love to talk to you about what it would mean to honestly follow the one who made you. And who died for you so that you could be forgiven and walk not in perfection, but in the freedom of Christ? Well, the good news of the gospel can often seem too good to be true, can it? In our suffering, it feels as if at times that God is against us, that he hates us even. Is that what you feel like God is saying to you in your suffering? I hate you. That's what we're going to consider second. We just considered Job's three pals and their lousy words of comfort. Here we're going to consider Job's speeches of despair. We're going to go deep into the heart of darkness here. Let's listen to Job in Job 6.4. Surely the arrows of the Almighty have pierced me. My spirit drinks their poison. God's terrors are to raid against me. Job will continue in chapter seven, verse 11. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster that you keep me under guard? When I say my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint. Then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I prefer strangling death rather than life in this body. I give up. I will not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. Job keeps going. Chapter nine, notice who Job thinks has done all this violence to him. He batters me with a whirlwind and multiplies my wounds without cause. He doesn't let me catch my breath but fills me with bitter experiences. That he is God. Job feels like God is his terrible adversary. Job had worshiped God back in chapters one and two. But by now, by chapter nine, really by chapter three, Job is depressed, confused, and ready to give up. Job's despair continues. I said, we're going to go into the heart of darkness. Listen to Job's despair later in chapter nine. Though I am blameless, I no longer care about myself. I renounce my life. It is all the same. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When catastrophe brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. The earth is handed over to the wicked. He blindfolds its judges. If it isn't he, then who is it? Job feels like God is mocking him in his misery. He calls himself blameless. Like what I said earlier is he's not saying that he's sinless, but that he's been a man of integrity. And it seems that God has ordered the universe now, at least in Job's experience, that there's, there's no justice and then therefore no peace for him. The judges have been blindfolded and God is the one who's responsible. Job wonders, why am I being treated like a sinner in the hands of an angry God? We should all acknowledge that even though we have never, none of us have ever experienced quite the suffering, the calamity that came on Job so suddenly, the way that Job speaks in these chapters, I would say that most of us understand. Whether you've lost a child, just a close friend, a parent, your health, your job, It can feel like God is against us in those times. Now, a few years ago, Ashley and I had this experience. We were trying to help someone and it totally backfired. Uh, We were met with explosive anger, unlike any we had ever experienced. It was so disorienting. And even some of our friends told us, well, it's kind of your fault would have been easy for us to conclude at that time that God was against us, that he was angry with us, that he even hated us. But our experience and our feelings aren't a very good indication of how God feels about us. In fact, how you think God feels about you says more about you, us, than it does about God. You know, we're, we're warped by the lies that we tell ourselves about ourselves, others, and God. So who will rescue us from our introspection? How do we get help when we feel like God is against us. What's the solution? Suffering is isolating. It, it alienates us from, from God and others when we're suffering. Sometimes the last thing that we want to do is be in fellowship with God, to draw near to him in his word or with his church, with one another to pray. And that's when the church needs to get to work. We shouldn't be annoyingly persistent in pursuing one another. There is time to give one another space. But we need to be present in suffering with each other. We need to draw near. We need to not correct one another's, uh, like when it feels like, when someone's expressing that they feel like God hates them, we don't necessarily give them a theology lecture at that point but we understand. I think all of us have had that experience where we feel like God is angry at us. You know, I, again, I have seen this church grow so much in knowing how to lament with one another, to care for one another. I've been so encouraged that even years after, say, Bill Fransky's accident, the church continues to draw near to the Fransky's, to serve them, to pray for them, to love them, So who are you going to come alongside, even this week? We all know people who are suffering. Even in our suffering, we are called to draw near to other sufferers. And you don't need to be a theologian. Actually, that was like the problem with Job's friends. They thought they knew all the answers. You don't need to know all the answers. They claimed, these friends claimed to know too much. We need people around us to remind us who God is. And that because of Christ, he is not against us, but he is for us. So the book of Job we see helps us. It cautions us from looking inward to our feelings or around us to our circumstances to conclude how God feels about us. Sometimes God treats his friends with silence and we can feel like God is ghosting us. He's ignoring us. That's how Job interpreted uh, what God was saying to him in his suffering. But we actually know how God feels about Job. We considered that last week. God tells us how he feels about Job in uh, Job chapter one and two. In Job one and two, God calls Job my servant, a term of high honor. He says, no one on earth is like him. uh, God is bragging on Job. He's a, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. But the problem for Job was that he didn't know that. He couldn't see into heaven's courtroom. But we know that Job is left on earth in silence and suffering. All he could feel was what he thought was poison, poisonous arrows, who he thought was from God, coursing through his bloodstream. You know, and we keep on reading and we see that Job wants nothing more than to die. And maybe you felt that way too in your pain. But remember, your pain today is not evidence of God's displeasure with you. We cannot see into heaven's courtroom. Just as we shouldn't draw straight lines between our guilt and our suffering, we must not draw lines, straight lines between our suffering and how we think God feels about us. We must not automatically conclude that God is angry with us even if it feels that way. So what is God saying to you in your suffering? Is he telling you that you're guilty? Is he saying, I hate you? Or is he saying something else? We have explored the darkness of Job's despair and his friend's so-called comfort, but is there any hope for Job? This is where we're going to turn in our third and final point. What is God saying to you in your suffering? He's saying, hope in me. You know, Job's friends and and Job's feelings made him feel like a lost man in a cave, about to go insane in the darkness. But Job isn't completely lost. Listen to Job chapter 9, verses 32 through 35. For he, Job is talking about God here, is not a man like me that I can answer him, that we can take each other to court. There's no mediator between us to lay his hand on both of us let him take his rod away from me so his terror will no longer frighten me. Then I would speak and not fear him. But that is not the case. I am on my own. Job wants God's heavy hand on him to be replaced by the hand of a mediator. And then maybe Job would have a chance in heaven's courtroom. This is what he hopes for. But then he despairs. Did you see there at the end? No such mediator exists, he says. How could Job appear in heaven's courts when he's sinking down below the earth? It'd be like you or me wishing that we could have an audience with, say, the king of England. Probably none of us have the connections to make that happen. And yet, even in Job's despair, the fact that he has raised the idea of a mediator is going to become like an earworm that he can't get out of his head. It's an impossible dream that won't leave him alone. So listen as Job's hope builds. Listen to Job 16, 19 through 22. Even now, my witness is in heaven, and my advocate is in the heights. My friends scoff at me as I weep before God. I wish that someone might argue for a man with God just as anyone would for a friend. For only a few years will pass before I go, to go the way of no return. Job needs a good lawyer. But he can't afford one. Soon Job knows that he will go the way of no return. His case will be left untried. But even though Job knows that his end is coming, his hope is rising. His impossible dream has become a desperate hope. And hope gives life to this. Listen to Job 19, 25 through 27. But I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end he will stand on the dust. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him and not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. A redeemer was usually a family member who would stand by you if you were wrongly accused, who would defend your cause. If you were murdered, A redeemer would see that your family would get justice and that that murderer was punished. A redeemer does for Job what Job cannot do for himself. A redeemer is a champion, a vindicator, a savior. Did you notice Job's confidence in these verses? But I know my redeemer lives. I will see God in my flesh. I will see Him myself. My eyes will look at Him. What happened to the guy who thought God was against him? I think he's taken those feelings of God being against him and he smashed them to the ground. Notice how Job thinks he will respond when he sees God I will look at Him and not as a stranger. Remember that when Job's friends first saw him in his agony in chapter two, they didn't recognize him. He looked like a stranger to them. But Job knows no stranger danger with God. Far from seeing God as his enemy or some stranger, he sees God, the Redeemer, as his friend. Job has found his light in the cave. His heart's longing has been found in God, his Redeemer. Seeing him and being vindicated by him is what jo- Job will live for and what he will die believing. How can we share this hopeful confidence in God, our Redeemer? Henson, how can we be like Job and say in the suffering, for I know my Redeemer lives. Well, for one, next time your feelings are telling you that God hates you and that you are guilty, you should put those feelings in their place. Preach the gospel to yourself about God, your Redeemer. Remind yourself of your certain hope that God has done for you what you could never do for yourself. Our confidence is not in ourselves, but in Christ alone. He is the one who paid the price of our redemption with the blood of his son. So do you think he's going to let those whom he has redeemed go? You know, even now, Christ lives as our redeemer. Let's look to him. And in our pain, in the brokenness of our lives in this world, where else can we go? Job's friends failed him, but here he has a friend who sticks closer than a brother. As we sing in the great hymn, Jesus, what a friend for sinners, Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my savior, makes me whole. We look to him, our friend and our redeemer, confident that our redeemer lives, each sunday that we gather that's why we gather we gather to proclaim with our lives and our fellowship that our redeemer lives and that we will see him and though that this life is hard and we're not faking it we have a hope in heaven that is secure we believe that we have a redeemer when we celebrate the lord's supper to one with one another and just as jesus hoped that he would drink the cup Of the vine in his kingdom that we will share that cup with him and celebrate with him in the new heavens and the new earth we believe that our redeemer lives even as we gather in small groups and we in just ordinary ways seek to encourage one another that in the trials in the pain of life that we have a redeemer we believe that we have a redeemer so we get into God's word and we look for a better word over our lives than what the world, what even sometimes our friends and what our feelings are telling us. We go to the only place that we can go, the one who has the words of eternal life. And like Job, we seek to be steadfast and suffering. We cannot persevere on our own. We need someone who lives and speaks a better word over our lives. I said earlier that suffering is isolating. So often, that's because of how we respond to suffering. We wanna hide. We wanna hide from God and our suffering. But suffering is God's way of reminding us of one who innocently suffered so that we could be hidden in him. Suffering must not push us away from God, but into him. Cast us on him, our only hope. So let's let the songs that we sing together each week, the word that we hear every week, bolster, strengthen our confidence in Christ, drawing us near to him in our suffering. You know, Christians have been reminding one another that our Redeemer lives, that we have a hope that is secure for thousands of years. Uh, just consider this 1740 hymn that we sing. Charles Wesley, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly while the near waters roll, while the tempest still is high. Hide me, O my Savior, hide, till the storms of life is past, safe into the haven guide, O receive my soul at last. We sing that, not to make us feel better, but because it's true. We will know storms in this life. And we think that trouble tells us all kinds of things about ourselves and about God. But regardless of what your trouble is telling you, the cross of Jesus tells us what God really thinks of you. The cross tells us that Satan is defeated. and He is no longer free to accuse us night and day before God's throne. The cross is the sign that suffering, loss, silence, and sin will not have the final word and our redeemer didn't stay on the cross. As one scholar writes, the father stood upon Christ's tomb and acted as his redeemer to vindicate him by resurrection. And this same God will stand upon the grave of every man or woman in Christ to act as our redeemer. And on the last day, we will stand justified and vindicated before him by grace. Because Christ rose, we have an advocate in heaven who lives to plead for us even now. Heaven came down. Heaven came down and showed us how God really feels about us. So what is God saying to you in your suffering? God is saying, hope in me. Look in faith on the broken body and the pierced hands and feet of the son. He lives for you. So will you live hoping in him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us the confidence to sing, to say over our lives that you, Jesus alone, are our hope in life and death, even when we don't feel that way. Even when others tell us Otherwise, even when our circumstances make us feel like we don't want to hear from you. Lord, in grace, draw near to us even when we're running the opposite direction. Lord, we confess had you not done this for us in our salvation, we would still be lost in our sin, guilty before you, knowing nothing but eternal punishment Uh, lord we we pray that you would help us grasp a hold of you by faith that our great redeemer's blood would be our boast lord we pray for the many in this room who have known great loss and suffering for us we pray that you would be our hope and stay and this life, and the next. And we pray that Jesus would return soon and make all things new. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.